0: Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. I'm an activist, analyst, writer, and sense maker. I'm a former Republican Central Committee delegate. I'm also a former Republican State Senate candidate for San Francisco, where I won 11% of the vote, which, trust me, is better than average. I'm also a free speech and gun rights activist, where I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November 2018 for their Guns in America issue. I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The topic of this podcast series will be politics and the current culture war, as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge. But I also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards grassroots, non-violent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go, and I want to help you change that. This podcast is the nucleus of a larger contextual insurgency project which includes a weekly roundup substack newsletter that will go out starting every Sunday with links to topical events and a short analysis. I plan to add a YouTube and website in the near future and expect more written content in various outlets. Producing this content is now my full-time job and if you find this project helpful and my content worthy, I would love your support. I've dusted off my Patreon and I have a Cash App and patronizing those would be greatly appreciated. My Cash App is dollar sign ee smith 4 that's the number 4 and patreon is patreon.com/ee smith 4 again that's the number 4 for the cost of buying me a mocha frappuccino at starbucks i can continue my work that ultimately is about helping you today is november 5th it is 6:20 p.m. as i'm recording this we're going to talk about this chaotic election that happened tuesday the aftermath of this where we stand and where we're going to go from here. Trust me, we're in a better position than you may think. We're going to start with something a little different. I want you to take a deep breath and then let it out. Relax. Okay. This is where we we stand. Whoever wins the presidency whether it's Biden or Trump does not change the path we have to walk or the things we have to accomplish. The only thing that changes is the timeline in which we have to accomplish those things and the margins of error we have to accomplish them. We're actually in a really decent position. Not where I would want to be but trust me it could have been a lot worse. According to political polling on Twitter, um, we seem to have picked up 11 seats in the House of Representatives, and we're leading in nine more. That was as of like 2.11 p.m. this afternoon. Um, So there's a potential, I guess, of everything according to this source, you know, there's a potential that um, we could get 20 seats in the House, I think, which supposedly leaves like a three-seat margin. So it could be really, really close for control of the House of Representatives. Um, Regardless, we're probably going to wind up in the teens. I would think, um, which is pretty amazing. I remember we were supposed to have a blue wave and they were supposed to pick up like 10 seats or something, the Dems were. Instead, we're looking like we're well over 10 and maybe 10 to 15 at least, I think is pretty reasonable. Um, we are currently net net um, down net one in the Senate. Uh, we lost two seats, but picked up one seat. Um, there are two seats that are doing a runoff in Georgia. And we'll probably get at least one of those. I, I'm a little concerned about Kelly Loeffler. Um, we'll see what goes with that. But I think we're going to get at least one of those. We'll have like a 51 seat. You know, I think overwhelmingly, we were, it looks like we're going to have the Senate too. Um, and we had a really bad map this year. We had 23 seats up. I think the Dems had like 11. We had, or 20, they, we had 23 seats up for it. The Dems had 12, I think. Um, so yeah, we had a bad year. And we managed to, to really minimize that. We were supposed to lose control of the Senate, the House, and the presidency. That's what the polls were showing. Instead, we picked up a bunch of seats in the House. We're holding on to the Senate. Um, and the presidency right now is super razor thin. Uh, but yeah, as far, before, I'm gonna talk to that last. The, at the state level, and this is really interesting. We picked up a couple House chambers, control, control of the state legislatures. Um, we picked up well over a hundred plus down ballot seats. Um, if anything, this was really much more of a red wave, and it's really fascinating. It's like um, the Trump, you know. It's like I said, I'll deal with that last. But outside of the presidency, it looks like a red wave. It's much more of a red wave, and honestly, I, I, I would not have called that. I would have thought we'd have probably maintained parity. Um, I thought we, I honestly thought we we're going to lose a handful of seats, maybe in the House, I really thought it was going to be a couple seats the other way. Um, I was concerned about the Senate. Um, We really over over overperformed and beat my expectations as far as the legislature. And the interesting thing, the reason I brought up the House, um, the state Houses, is you remember what happened this year, guys? We had a census. Uh, We had a census for redistricting. And who does the redistricting? Well, the state legislatures and as it stands now we the republicans have around 40 percent of the districts in the united states that are going to be redistricted are under the absolute control of republicans the democrats have control of like less than 10 percent the rest the rest are either like some kind of a mix of either split legislatures or some type of neutral commission that handles that um so we're going to have you know we, we had a big push um you know the state and federal legislature over, that did over we really really overperformed and we're going to get a lot of influence in redistricting uh so like honestly 2022 i think we're going to have solid control like 20, 2022 the map is slightly better for the senate we're still like going to be defending more seats But I think we're going to have, like, honestly, I think in 2022, my prediction is we take control of the House again. um, And we maintain control of the Senate. We may actually pick up one or two more. I think it's going, I think 2022, my honest opinion at this point, is going to be a very solid year for Republicans. Okay, let's talk about the presidential race. As it stands now, Biden seems to have a very slim lead. And several states. Um, uh, Trump is um, still leading in Pennsylvania by a few thousand votes and Georgia I think by a few thousand it looks like he's going to probably pull ahead in Arizona. Um, You know there's been some talk in Georgia I think the the lead now in Georgia is down to 2,500 so that's kind of a nail-biter. You know I'm going to talk about fraud. Fraud of course comes up in any close election Uh, The reality is, and I I don't like to to scream fraud. I'm not one of those people who just, I mean, it happens. I think people, I think it is overblown, but I do think it happens. I mean, here's the reality. Um, Anything that is valuable will be stolen, you know, um, whether it's a tangible good or it's something else like, you know, anything that could bring some sort of advantage or have some value. And, you know, an election is one of the most valuable things you can get. Um, and then when you stick people in the process, you know corruption and you know uh just general- it's human nature you know corruption and uh self serving and self dealing um look at it this way if you could go back uh to you know nineteen thirty three weimar Germany and stop. Hitler by stuffing a few ballot boxes, you probably would do it. I think most people would do it and there are people today who look at Trump who literally believe Trump is Hitler and they a lot of them are in positions of power in the government as well as like the corporate and the media and the tech world. I mean it's completely ridiculous, but they have talked themselves into believing that. Another thing to illustrate here that why I think these people will be willing to do this, is go back and listen to episode five of this podcast. I talked about the Transition Integrity Project and shut down DC. Um, the so-called Transition Integrity Project was a group of, you know, war, a group of a Corridor like DC uh, think tank people, uh, some rhinos and Democratic activists. Um, the founder or one of the one of the co-organizers, Rosa Brooks. Her mother was one of the co-founders of DSA, Barbara Ehrenreich. DSA is Democratic Socialists of America. I covered them in episode 6. But one of their scenarios they worked on was a narrow Trump victory. And like they literally, you know, it's you can read the Wikipedia and it's incredibly fascinating. They talked about it and they, they, class, they called it a Trump victory. It's like Trump has the electoral college votes he needs to um, win the election. And their plan was... You know, talk to Democratic governors, have several of them, like, threaten succession. If Trump uh, does not, you know, concede, despite having electoral electoral College victory, they talked about, you know, twisting Nancy Pelosi's arm to refuse to seat the delegations and, you know, refuse to and just hand Biden the victory. And that's just insanely blatant. So you have to... You, you, people that are willing to do that, that are willing to threaten succession... That are willing to, you know, censor the New York Post on Twitter um, when they're reporting on massive corruption issues with with Joe Biden and Hassan Hunter, with foreign countries. When they're willing to shut them down for that, stuffing a few ballot boxes is no big deal. Election fraud is something that has happened in American history. Um, It's what's happened in world history. You know, we've got like there's Tammany Hall. Um, like the New York City in the 19th century, like the whole Tammany Hall machine. Um, the Chicago, like apparently in 1960, um, you know, Nixon was ahead, and, you know, the Daily Machine stuffed a few ballot boxes, and they went from like 3,000-vote lead for Nixon to like an 8,000-vote lead for Kennedy. Um, you know, one of the most storied incidents in, in the gun community is something called the Battle of Athens, where a bunch of veterans came after World War II, and they were trying to clean up corruption in their town. And during the election, the local officials... After the election, the, the local officials took all the ballot boxes and went to the sheriff's office, and they were going to count them in private. And they wouldn't allow anyone to watch. Um, and they were stuffing the ballot boxes. The local veterans got their guns, and they got dynamite, and they went down there, and they blew open the doors of the jail, put all the local officials in the cell, then like took all the boxes down and counted them on the hood of a car in front of everyone, and... Um, where there's plenty of public witnesses and they re- completely remove the local machine from power. So, I mean, like it, it comes down to, you know, means, motive, and opportunity. And there have been so many incidents of this in American history that, you know, it, it, it is a serious possibility. And, and I want to make this clear. I'm not saying 100% that this is stolen. What I'm trying to say is I think what we... When we look at elections we have the wrong null hypothesis and null hypothesis is your starting hypothesis you know um your, your default like we have a default these days and this is something the media pushes where they talk especially the media and the political class they're like you know we're are we're supposed to assume that all elections are valid and legitimate and you have to prove otherwise and that's a serious problem because we don't allow that sort of null hypothesis any starting assumption in any other area like you know airplane parts like you would never you know when when you, when you if you have an airliner and you work for a, a commercial you know a commercial air carrier you just don't buy random parts and stick them on a plane like you have to have a long list of certifications in those parts if the part doesn't have all these things these certifications for it it's assumed like basically the assumption is the part is defective unless you can prove it is, you know, of proper quality and functional. Um, we don't do that with food. Like, you don't just assume all food is good unless you have to prove the food is bad. Like, we have USDA inspectors, whether or not you think that's something that is works or not. But the whole thing is, like, the whole starting assumption with our food supply, with critical machine parts, so many things. The starting assumption is, you know, this is not of satisfactory quality until we have these consistent steps where, where what we're looking at is proven to be legitimate. And I mean, I've worked and, you know, I've worked, I've been a poll worker. I, I, I don't think a lot of that happens. If, you know, if fraud happens, most of it probably doesn't happen at the low level. Um, you know, and I don't think it's widespread across the country. Uh, I do think, um, there probably are, you know, Especially in a mail with a mail with with a mail in ballot system. Like I have friends, you know their ballot box is stuffed with votes. Like I I moved and I've got a ballot to a different state and I've got a, a ballot in the mail from back home, you know. Um Yeah, you know, we we have to we have to look at changing a lot of this stuff. Um the whole thing is like if there's any legitimate grounds for, for suspicion, we have to try to minimize that and you know i think you know we we have to look at taking steps like i don't i think mail-in ballots are a really bad idea Um, and you know elections we can't for my one another another big objection i have to mail-in ballots is we're treating this the electoral process with a certain degree of casualness that i don't think it warrants When when we're engaging in the in the political process in an electoral process You know, we are determining the people that are going to exercise political power. That needs to be treated with a degree of gravity and seriousness that I think is really, really lacking. So up to the courts now. You know, I I voted. Um, I have been to, I've gone to some protests here in Phoenix um, by the the elections office. Uh, I'm doing pieces like this and other, I mean, there's only so much average people can do. If there's some protest in your area and you can show up for that sure go do it be peaceful you know don't call i mean you know we we don't need to be (laughs) let's not do what they did this summer and start smashing burning stuff be above board all right um if you go to something in your local area that's awesome do it go down there try to make connections too. and that's something we try to point out here a lot at the contextual insurgent project make local connections when you go to those things Introduce yourself to people, pass out cards if you have cards, make contacts. Um, you're going to see a lot of people at these things. Um, one thing I've seen a lot, like I've been to tons of rallies and protests, a big part of the things that happen at rallies protests is like networking and movement building. You're getting a bunch of like-minded people together in a small area that are interacting, and you start to see the same faces after a while, a lot of the same faces. Um, and you can recognize each other and you build connections from there. Like there's people that I know that all met in 2017 um, and that they are back to, you know, they they, they are working on other projects together because they learn to trust each other um, and, and work together. Uh, and that's a big part of that is the movement building. So even if this goes against Trump and we get Biden there's some really interesting things with um trump's vote chair that i think are incredibly fascinating and offer uh an insight into where we need to go from here you know we we've had this thing there's been a tension in the republican party for a long time we've had we saw it with the tea party that started there was you know has been this disconnection from the country club republicans uh and the chamber of commerce republicans and like your your base Republicans, a lot of your middle class, working class people. And there's been something similar on the left where a lot of Democratic constituencies felt like they were being left to the wayside. And that shifted. Um, Trump got really, like, he brought in a ton of Latinos, uh, especially the Hispanic vote. But especially in Texas, like, the most Hispanic county in America, it was like 96% Latino. It's in like Star County, Texas. It's relatively small, but it shifted to like it went from like 60 points for Hillary, like like a 60 point gap. It went from like 90, 95% for Hillary to like 5% for Biden. I can't remember the exact thing, but it was like a 60 point swing. And it was just, it was absolutely stunning. Um, that like Trump got 35% of Muslims. that's you know one-third Muslims like Trump got something like normally Jews in America vote like I think like 10 percent for Republicans or like 90 they're like one of the most reliably Democratic voting blocks next to blacks and like they voted like 30-35 percent of them vote of Jews in America voted for Trump um I think the black votes like a 15 percent for Trump um there's big, massive shifts, and it was really interesting. Uh, there was a, a slight dip in in the uh, like the white vote, especially the, the college-educated vote, and it's really interesting. This is part of the, the shift that we're looking at. Um, see, in American history, there's something called the party systems, which every like you know it, it varies, but ballpark, we're in what's called the six-party system, and basically every forty-ish years on average, um, the like Elec- the the uh, the makeup of the American populace, the electorate shifts dramatically, in like the political party alignments and what states vote for what party, and it's kind of strange. It's like a real seismic shift, but roughly every forty years, and we're in the six-party system, and we're about f- depending. It's it's unclear, but like forty to forty-five to fifty years in, so we've been due for this for a while. And I think we it would have happened in 2010, but maybe that got clamped down. It got clamped down on, in my opinion. And I think it's finally happening. And I think we're going to see a lot of the uh, working class, um, democratic consensuals, like the union people broke really hard for Trump. Uh, we're going to see big chunks of all the various peoples of color and minorities and stuff. Not Probably not majorities for a while, but we're going to see big chunks of them break off and come to the Republican party. If if the potential's there. Um Trump did it, Trump pulled it off and we can build a truly massive coalition out of this. Uh Yeah, we we, we lost, you know, the the in my opinion we're going to have, you know, a lot of the urban and suburban um uh, college educated whites are going to that are the country-club Republicans are going to Move over to the Democratic Party, like a lot of the the new, neocon types and the uh, the Rick Wilsons and all the the Lincoln Project people. They're going to shift to the Democratic Party, in my opinion. Uh, and we're going to get a lot of big chunks of the Democratic Party moving to us. Basically, the future I think for the Republican Party is is right populism. And I am you not the first person to say that. It's not my idea. Like I, I didn't come up with that. But I it it aligns with what you know I've seen, and I agree with that that theory so it really comes down to if we can take what trump has done and build from there you know um i think you know josh halley talks like he seems like he gets it i think ted cruz sees it now um so yeah so let's let's assume let's let's talk about okay just theoretical what happens if biden wins um well we've got to you know the courts and the supreme court especially federal judges we've got a a lot of people trump put in there um we're going to have the senate it looks like by a narrow margin so we can you know deadlock a lot of stuff i would lay a good bit of money at good odds that we're going to expand that in 2022 and we're going to pick up the house again so we'll have in my opinion. We'll have a split legislature for two years, and then in 2022, we get Republicans, um, House, and Senate. Uh, I I am convinced that's going to happen. Um, The concerning thing, my concern about where weakness are is is the weakness we already have. The corporate world, the tech world, um, and the administrative state, we're going to have a lot of pushback from them because they're going to put, their loyalists are already there. Trump tried to slow them down as best he could, there's only so much he can do. So if Biden gets in there and puts some more loyalists, we're going to be dealing with a lot of that, which means we're going to have lots of lawfare going on. Um, The concerning thing is, and this is something Republicans miss a lot, most people actually, but especially like centrist and right-leaning people, a lot of the models we have for like exercising power in society are kind of outdated. You know, it's like most, when you talk about private private businesses, um, they think of like the corner hardware store or something, uh, you know, and you want our sole proprietorship. And my honest, like we, we have to come to terms with the fact that, you know, a globe spanning um, public company in a consolidated industry cannot be looked at the same way as, as a sole proprietorship corner hardware store in a small town. Uh, If you get banned from the hardware store, Uh, So what, go to the next one, there's probably more than one in your town, or there's probably a small town not far away, that's not a big deal. Um, If somebody has tremendous market power, if a corporation has tremendous market power because of consolidation, and they're willing to bully other people into following along, like, people are getting kicked out from their banks now, like Yiannopoulos, a bunch of other people um, getting banned by banks now, I mean, more and more of our life is moving online. Um... And the internet's naturally something that's going to consolidate because it scales. You know, the more people that are in a network, the more valuable that network is. So there's that issue, um, and because there's no uh, spatial limitation to the internet, you know, you're you're going to have more consolidated sites with tremendous market power. And now that you know, if they can get Trump out of the way, where at least the executive branch is less likely to stop them. We're going to see a lot of that. Um, They're probably, they banned Steve Bannon today from YouTube and Twitter, like, at the same time, which was clearly, clearly um, coordinated. Two separate companies banning someone immediately at the same time, like, within seconds of each other. Not not random. That's not coincidence. So there's that issue. You know, we have to come, like, John Robb talks about the long night, which is, you know, Networked corporate coercion, like building a tribal network of people and and co you know corporations, and if everyone gets aligned and starts moving in the same direction, I mean you can. There's no reason you can't privatize tyranny, and that's what you have when when we move our lives online, and more and more of our lives are in the information space, and the infrastructure underlying all that the information the newosphere or whatever you want to call it is privately owned by you know very partisan actors that's a serious problem i mean it's not like you can just go make your own website now i mean you can but the thing is if you get too big like they are deplatforming websites like there's a big network of you know like the cloudflare is doing that where they they have deplatformed people and websites that for you know like the the election day they deplatform BitChute. I think BitChute's back up, but that is the alternative to YouTube. Um, they're back up, but they had to, they made them ban a bunch of different um, people and remove a bunch of different videos, and and that's an issue. I mean, I, there's only so much limitation you can say for yeah, it's a private company. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. Again, like I said, we're gonna have to understand that if you don't change, like you know, you don't your power company doesn't get to ban you. Your phone company doesn't get the value. You. Your water company doesn't get the Um So we're gonna have to try to figure that out. I don't think getting rid of Section Two Hundred and Thirty is a good idea. That's a different discussion. Um, maybe some tweaks to it is a good idea. I think getting rid of Section Two Hundred and Thirty, which is the part of the, you know, CDA, like the communicate the Communications Decency Act, which was actually ironically like most of that was thrown as unconstitutional except for Section Two Hundred and Thirty. Um, getting rid of that is a bad idea in my opinion. Um, tweaking it maybe, tying it to some type of you know content neutrality might be a good idea. I don't know. It's a complicated question. I haven't heard any convincing answers from anyone yet. Will Chamberlain has an idea um, of applying Civil Rights Act protections to uh, political opinions on um, platforms, which is possible. I mean, you know, if we regulate businesses all the time. You know, it's apparently it's okay to regulate businesses. Um, I mean, the whole thing is like if we can regulate a business for discriminating it's a protected class, and you know, and a protected class is a completely artificial creation. There's no reason we can't tweak that. You know, include other things, but it's it's really complicated, and I, I don't even think Will's idea is completely um, satisfactory. And one thing I want to point out on that too is like it's a super complicated topic like there's only a handful of people who probably really understand section 230 i'm not an expert in it um there's no publisher uh platform distinction the way people you hear people say that Um uh, but you can still like the the distinction from what i understand it is and the case law and stuff is it's a massive rabbit hole it's like the section 230 is a couple sentences but like the case law is like massively complicated um you, you can modify stuff that's been put up on a platform, and it doesn't make you a publisher under 230. To be a, to be or or you can be the publisher, but it doesn't count to be liable for information that you under section 230. You have to solicit the content, so it's not like that's why like Peter Thio, Peter Thiel destroyed Gawker because they posted a bunch of stolen stuff from a phone. You know and they, they, he Gawker outed Peter Thiel as gay and they had a bunch of it's a big massive thing and he got angry and then they posted a bunch of other stuff. Um, I think it was stolen it was stolen stuff from um, Hulk Hogan's phone and Peter Thiel bankro bankrolled that lawsuit and Gawker was liable for what they posted because it was stuff that they put up themselves and solicited you know it was not separate third party people. You know, it's it's basically third party, you know, if it's a third party content and you didn't, if you don't solicit that content, um, you can delete or modify that and it doesn't make you the publisher under 230. You know, it's super complicated. Um, I don't think that's that's necessarily the right tactic. I don't think getting rid of it is the right tactic. Something else people have a little trouble dealing with, and I, I don't think it's really sunk in a lot, is the China problem and And when you allow corporations to do whatever they want uh they naturally like corporations and businesses are optimizers they want to get the most money for increase shareholder value uh well, China doesn't recognize that public private split the same way like western countries do, and they there's this there's this quasi communist slash capitalist country. They have these technically private companies and like they have a massive economy, second second largest in the United States. When they don't have that and they have this autocratic, powerful government, they've already proven themselves to be more than willing to use their economic clout to force corporations to fall in line. So I mean we've seen this already with like the NBA and other companies, you know, the upcoming Maverick film, the Maverick sequel to to, to Top Gun. They made them edit out his jacket because he had a jacket in the original film that had like the Taiwan flag on it. They made them remove that. Like, you can't, you know, the NBAs, you can't actually order like a jersey that says like free Hong Kong. Like, they have, there's like a block in there for that. Um, yeah, it's so like corporations, you know, like China has been willing to use their clout to force corporations in line to access their markets. And, you know, we don't have protections against that if we privatize everything the corporations are going to follow like they're going to follow with the chinese line especially if joe biden gets in and like they're obviously paying paying they basically seem to own him and his son and you know with with, a, with the way we think of governments of being you know we think of if you shrink the size of government you're you're freer well i mean if you privatize everything and some transnational corporation owns everything and that corporation owns to China, isn't China, in fact, your de facto government? That's what it really comes down to me, is eventually we're going to have to do something about that, because, in my opinion, there's a strong chance by the end of 2024 that China becomes de facto world, you know, world leader, um, using economic clout. You know, they have something called sharp power, Um, which is a Chinese construct. There's like the soft power and the hard power. And, you know, China created something called sharp power, which is kind of a mix of the two. You know, sharp power is um, attempts by one country to manipulate and manage information about itself in the news media and educational system of another country. Um, And that's a big part of it. You know, um, there's the link between sharp power and authoritarian regime as the state of stated, the approach takes advantage of the asymmetry between free and unfree systems, allowing authoritarian regimes both to limit free expression and distort political environments in democracies, while simultaneously shielding their own domestic public spaces from democratic appeals coming from abroad. And that's that's basically what we're looking at. You know, it's like we're, we're entering an economic and information war that authoritarian nations, like China, are probably in a better position to fight um if you can defeat your enemy, if you can subdue your enemy without fighting, as Sun, Sun Tzu says, that is the you know, the ultimate height, the, the acme of skill. And that's what we're looking at. So to move on from all this, um, basically a mixed bag. We've got a lot of positive things. Don't focus on the presidency so much. Hopefully, you know, Trump, Trump is a master at pulling something out. Uh, Hopefully we will get that. If we don't, it's not a complete loss. We've got a lot of really positive things um, that are happening. Um, But let's talk about what we need to do from here. Well, you know, something I I harp on here a lot is we need to build community. And that's what I want you to do starting with. You know, if you haven't already, make a list of people. Build build your affinity group. You know, affinity group is a group of people that are, you know, it's like a reading group. And like I talked about this in episode 6, you know, Jacobin Magazine built affinity groups by starting reading groups. Which is, you know, people who were reading the magazine in areas and they set up these little groups of people that got together and chatted and read the same articles and discussed them. And, you know, while they were doing that, you know, setting up meeting spaces and all the management and logistical part of that. Like they were teaching them how to organize politically without actually explicitly calling it that those basic skill sets they were learning or skill sets they could apply in different areas and that's what i want you to do it's like you've got i'm sure you have friends that are politically compatible with you and that you trust at least two or three or four you know like think of those people i want you to make a list of those people and i want you to talk to them and start your affinity group be explicit about it you know uh, I'm going to actually challenge you to do something. I want you to start a reading group if you're listening to this. Uh, start a reading and listening group for this podcast. Um, I've actually, one of my friends has started one. We're starting a couple others. Um, we've got at least three reading groups going right now. That people that are listening, reading to my content. I'm actually bringing some more writers onto my Substack, And we're going to be dealing with, uh, we're going to have a lot more content out coming out with some reading groups. um and expanding from there. I'm really excited about where this is going. Test the first thing. Build your local community. Find the people that you trust in the area. And get together. Start reading. And start learning. We need to start really decentralizing a lot of stuff. We're going to... Obviously, you know, I, I don't think... Like, I, I'm on Substack, and um, this, this project's on Substack, and Anchor, and Spotify, and a bunch of different other, you know, podcast platforms... Eventually, I think there's going to be a big. They're going to really start expanding the deplatforming. So we need to start like get on Parler and all these other ones. And Signal's a big thing. Focus on that. Uh, The Signal app start expanding. Looking for other platforms. Start creating alternative accounts. Um, Don't Discord's pretty iffy, honestly. Um, Maybe worth having a spare on there. But Telegram's a good one to get. Signal. Those are good things to do. So get together with your friends and you know i would love it if you have a reading group on my stuff that if you that's a great place to start have a reading and listening group um where you discuss these podcast series um but stop and think you know beyond that when it comes to action ask yourself you know how can i be useful what can i do write down a list of things that you're good at um write down a things that you know list things that you want to change that you're concerned about. You know, the reality is you're not going to get out there on the street tomorrow and build what the left has. It just doesn't happen that way. They started very small, you know, and that's what you're going to have to start with. Start with small groups. Like I mentioned in episode six, you know, Jacobin had their reading groups that started a, a network of small reading groups across the country, and they grew. And then with the when the Bernie campaign they exploded in size, because they had that network there, and they plugged people in and created more groups, then they took over DSA and they had a place to bring all these people. So, it's it's you know it's a um, exponential function. You know, once you start putting a network together and growing it, it starts. There's a certain point where it starts scaling very quickly. Another thing that's really important is I know you're very pissed off right now, and that's why I started this piece off by saying you know it's like take a deep breath, be calm. Things are not nearly as dire as they look, even if we, even if Trump loses. Like, we have a lot of really positive things that have happened in this election cycle. Um, lots of real interesting points to move forward from here. Um, stay calm. I need you, like, you know, I've written about this before multiple times. It's the pieces I've written in Center for Security Policy, the piece that was in the recent piece uh, when I went undercover in Black Block. I talk about dilemma actions and the way that the left treats violence as a spectrum, and the right treats violence as like a switch. Um, they're going to try to turn that switch down. They want they want to aggravate you. They want you to take you on. They want to get footage of you looking and acting badly on camera, misbehaving, so they can use that for propaganda. Um, so that's super, super important that you keep calm and that you do not get baited into overreacting and doing something stupid. If you know someone that's running for office, like local or state level, um, get ready and start planning to back them. If you're considering running running for office, start planning now. You know, um, reach out to your local uh, Republican central committees, or depending where you are, it could be a central committee or, or you you know the precinct. They have the precinct meeting. Like some places have like a district, um, a district committee. Then there's a county committee. So, look out for those, research it in your area, do an area study. I'm going to have a piece on that where I talk about power mapping your local community, figuring out who's who, um, who's doing what. I'll have an episode on that that goes ahead, does a really deep, in in depth dive. So, look at that. You know, look around there where you can be useful. Again, be useful. Find friends. Put your friends together, make sure everyone's on the same page, start working together. And we are social animals, like it or not. And something I keep saying, the irony of protecting individual rights is it requires a collective group effort. Let me end on this point. Everything that's happened, that they've done, it's it's taken a tremendous level of cooperation and collusion on their part. We have had a tech corporate uh, media, collaboration, working together, internet you know, it's insanity. The tech companies, the censorship, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I, I honestly thought in 2016 they'd be unhappy about Trump, but they would at least accept his presidency. But that's clearly not happened. They pulled out all the stops. Like we had lying po- like the, they, the polls were so far off, um, insanely off. And the, the, the polls actually, the fact the polls were so far off, it is really makes warms my heart. Because the important part of the thing is there are two things. First of all, it means their models are so wrong that it's just laughable. The second thing, it means that people are learning to lie to these people. Like they're learning to be smart and keep what they think to themselves. And we need to keep encouraging that. Like start lying to pollsters on a regular basis. Because we need to... To ruin their data as much as possible. Um, yeah, this is. It took everything they had to get to this point, point. and they like they've exposed themselves to the world. It's like I've seen so many people just get like completely red pilled over the last few days. They're like, holy shit! They, I cannot believe what is happening. And the best it's given them is a razor thin margin with the presidency that hasn't even been resolved yet. Uh, they lost seats in the House, You know they maybe gained one seat in the Senate. They fell so far short of their expectations, and this is the thing, it's like, you know, they keep screwing up, but their projections, like, these are people that think they're very smart, and these masters of the universe, 2016 they got blindsided. They lied to themselves about what was going to happen and why, Trump blindsided them, they lied to themselves again in 2016 because they have this massive blind spot and they believe they're infallible. Um and they got all, they got blindsided again. You know, they there came out today on Twitter they had a house Democratic House caucus phone call and people were screaming at Nancy Pelosi. the representatives were screaming at Nancy Pelosi and because they let the wokeness go and go way overdrive. A bunch of people lost their seats. Um some people came super close to losing their seats. It just, you know, it really, like, they're very angry and upset. And, like, even if, you know, Trump loses, they're going to be happy about that. But they these people are so angry. Like, they had, they never expected they would lose big chunks of their base to the right. Like, they got the suburban, a certain amount of suburban white like, rhino Republicans moved over more Democratic. But they lost big chunks of, of demographics they just took for granted. So, yeah, if we pulled this off when we're not that super organized, um, unfortunately, it's true. We're getting better. We're working on it. But we know what we need to do now. Um, we pulled that off being relatively unorganized and um, despite their best efforts. And now only thing they've really done is... You know, there was no there was if anything more, it was closer to a red wave in the face of all that. Um yeah, it's like we can beat these people. Like that's that's it. That was their best shot, and that's the best they could do. So I'm gonna wrap that up. Um it's a little bit of a rambling one. I have some notes. I was just trying to go over my thoughts and get this stuff out. I'll have the next one I'm gonna do, um I've got a couple written down, it's gonna go back to more of a formal format this was kind of a uh, stream of consciousness here i have some notes and stuff i just wanted to expand kind of riff on it so yeah i hope you enjoyed this podcast i hope you've enjoyed my Substacks. um please you know again i appreciate your support i'm going to have a lot more stuff coming out here really soon um my cash app is dollar sign eesmith4 that's the number four patreon is patreon Backslash ee Smith four again. That's the number four. Appreciate your support for a mocha frappuccino at Starbucks. That I can, you know, a monthly mocha cha- mocha cappuccino. I don't think that's too much to ask if you love my content. Um, but thank you so much. Like I said, uh, this stuff is gonna be free. I'm not gonna pay wall anything. I may have like for subscribers on Patreon and stuff. I'm gonna start putting stuff together uh, for those people. Like as a little thank you. But the meaty content stuff, like I want to make sure that it gets out to enough people, because I think it's that I think it's really important. Um, I've had an interesting life with a lot of experiences, and I've seen a lot of stuff, and I've got the hands-on knowledge and the intellectual, like conceptual knowledge, to synthesize something and try to help right-wing people um, learn and grow and get to a place where we can start pushing back on this. Anyway, this is Aaron Smith with the Contextual Insurgent Podcasts, and you have a great night.